Merry Christmas. Really good to have you here today. Don't forget, come on back tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. In fact, you can't wait. Tomorrow's service is going to blow your mind. They got some special stuff in there, a God at Work story, some special things with music. It's going to be outrageous. I mean, anyhow, you got to come back. I'll be here. So, You know, if Jesus really is the Christ, the Savior of the world, God coming to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, if this is all true, then the most important question that everyone in the world has to answer is, what are you going to do with Jesus? I mean, whether you're a skeptic or a believer, you still have to answer the question, well, what are you going to do with Jesus? So you've been a believer for years, you still have to answer that question? Yeah, when you get up tomorrow. What are you going to do with Jesus? When you go to work, what are you going to do with Jesus? In training your kids, what are you going to do with Jesus? In setting your retirement, well, what are you going to do with Jesus? Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, the most important repeated question we always have to answer, if this Christmas stuff is true, well, then what are you going to do with Jesus? He's the Savior. He's God come to earth. He's the whole reason for your existence, and he's coming to bring you home. If it's true, then the most important question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? And you think, well, no, I, I mean, it's really important my health. If you got your health, you got everything, right? Or my money, or my retirement, or my children, or my, you know, it goes on and on like, really? Those are not that important compared to the most important question that everybody's going to have to answer someday. In fact, let me show you. Let me show you some passages of Scripture and reasons I believe this so strongly. One of them is the statement of Jesus himself. In John 14, 6, he said, what? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. He's saying he's the way, the truth, and the life. It's a very all-inclusive statement. And that no one can come to God except through him. That's why I say, he's the most important person of all time. And the most important question is, what are you going to do with him? You know, I thought to start off, I thought, well, let's go to the end. You know, the Bible lays out how we began. And the Bible tells us, well, here's how it's all going to end. John the Apostle had a vision from God. And God told him in the vision, here's how it's all going to end. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, let's look at it together. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, which is just a couple chapters away from the very end, it tells us this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And just a few verses later, it says this. Then I saw, John says, I saw another vision of what's going to happen in the future, what's going to happen at the end. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And I might add, according to what they'd done with Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What are you going to do with Jesus? You know, you can, you can look through history, and you'll find there's one figure throughout human history that's mentioned the most. Historians talk about Jesus. Talk about philosophers. Philosophers say all kinds of things, but they have to answer the question, well, what are you going to do with Jesus? The most important figure. You go look at art, whether it's art in Europe, art in Asia, art in Russia, or art in, in North America or South America. There's so much art. There's more art about Jesus than any other figure in human history. What are you going to do with about that? What are you going to do with Jesus is the most important question that all of us will have to answer someday. And we have to answer it right now. From the birth of Jesus up till right now, there's been three most popular ways people deal with Jesus. And the first one is they reject him. That's point one in your outline. They reject him. The Bible predicted that would happen in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> chapter 53, when talking about Jesus, it says that he was despised and rejected by men. This is hundreds of years before he even came to earth. It says, well, he's going to be rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it's one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and he was esteemed, and we esteemed him not. You know, Herod the Great was the king of Judea. That means he's a Jewish king over a Jewish, predominantly Jewish area. But he works for the Roman government. And he's been put in charge by the Romans. He was the king when Jesus came to earth with, you know, baby in the manger, the whole thing, Bethlehem. And he was the one that heard that these wise men, these uh, people don't know, were they sorcerers? Were they kings? Were they magicians, magi? You know, these kings in the east. And so he thought, I need to meet with these guys. I want to talk with them because this guy could be a threat to my leadership and a threat to what I'm doing. So in Matthew chapter 2, we read these words, starting uh, with chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Read like this. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star, remember they had seen a star, had appeared. And he sent to them, sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and, and, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too, that I too may come and worship him. 
but he didn't really mean it like that because we read back at verse 13, skip ahead to verse 13, reads like this. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod, remember, just coming back to the story now, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, took the child and his mother, that's Mary and Jesus, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained that the, from the wise men. Then was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Again, he refers back. It's, this is all predicted. All predicted, it says, by God, hundreds of years in advance. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod tried to kill Jesus, not just reject him as who he said he was. He was literally trying to kill him. You know, if you read on through the Bible, you'll find all kinds of people rejecting Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jewish people whom he came to, they rejected him. Turn with me to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we read this. Remember, in John chapter 11, it's all about God, excuse me, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Remember, that was one of his best friends. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and he had just raised him from the dead. And look what happens. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come to Mary and had seen this, they did believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with Jesus? For this man performs many signs. He literally just raised a guy from the dead. If we let him go, go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this in his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. For so, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Isn't that weird? He had just raised a guy from the dead. He's performing all these miracles, and still they rejected him. And the same thing happens today in people's lives. I've seen people who have to even testified how God did a miracle in their life or in someone else's life they knew. They still reject him. They still answer, I'm not going to do nothing with Jesus. Really? What a foolish thing that would be. How stupid to see miracle after miracle, people's lives being transformed right in front of your very eyes, unexplainable in human terms, and yet reject him? Yeah, it happens all the time. Still does. Back then it did, and today it still does. You know, 
a little while ago, my wife and I sat down. We were going to watch a movie. And so Lori's got a list of movies that she's heard about or maybe some of you have recommended. These are good movies you can watch, you know, Netflix. So So we decided that we were going to watch a movie called The Case for Christ, based on a book. In fact, it's based on this book by Lee Strobel. This guy was a journalist. In fact, he had his degree in journalism, and then he went to Yale Law School and got his degree in law. And he was the editor of the legal department at the Chicago Tribune. And he was renowned as a journalist. But he was also renowned as a rejecter of Jesus. See, he was an atheist. But his wife started going to church and checking out this Jesus stuff. And he kept trying to prove to her and showed her, this is stupid. You wouldn't, who, who with a mind would follow Jesus? So he set out to discover the truth. Ended up writing a book that became a bestseller called The Case for Christ because he became a Christian through his studies. Now, I would love to read to you everything in the book, and I highly recommend it. In fact, there's a man a while back who heard me refer to it once. He went and bought the book. He's a medical doctor. He says, Marty, I'm a scientist. I don't make any decisions without facts. So he read this book. And he told me, and I read it again. Then I read it a third time, and I went out and bought every book this guy ever wrote. He, too, is convinced by the facts. Listen to this from Lee Strobel. I got his picture. There he is. Put his picture on the screen. Toward the end of the book, let me just read this to summarize some of what he said and what he studied. The atheism I had embraced for so long buckled under the weight of the historical truths I was discovering. It was a stunning and radical outcome, certainly not what I had anticipated when I embarked on this investigative process. But it was, in my opinion, a decision compelled by facts, all of which led me to the somewhat big question in life. What are you going to do with Jesus? If this is true, what difference does it make? Here are several obvious implications that I had after my study. Number one, if Jesus is the Son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They are divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. Number two, if Jesus sets the standard for morality, I can now have an unwavering foundation for my choices and decisions rather than basing them on the ever-shifting sand of expediency or self-centeredness. Next, if Jesus did rise from the dead, he's still alive today and available for me to encounter on a personal basis. Next, if Jesus conquered death, he can open the door of eternal life for me too. If Jesus had, next, if Jesus had divine power, he has the supernatural ability to guide me and help me and transform me as I follow him. And finally, or not finally, but another point is, if Jesus personally knows the plan, the pain of loss and suffering, he can comfort and encourage me in the midst of turbulence and difficulties in my own life. And next, if Jesus loves me as he says he does, he has my best interest at heart. That means I have nothing to lose and everything to gain by committing my life to him and to his purposes. And finally, if Jesus is who he claims to be, and remember, no leader of any other major religion has even pretended to be God. 
well, he's my creator. He rightfully deserves my allegiance then and my obedience and my worship. And he says this in conclusion. I remember writing out these implications on my legal pad and then leaning back in my armchair. I had reached the culmination of my nearly two-year journey. It was finally time to deal with the most pressing question of all. What am I going to do with Jesus? How about you? And I'm firmly convinced you may answer that question once, even accept Jesus as your Savior. But you've got to keep asking the question. Now I'm hoping that this Christmas, day before even Christmas Eve, you're still asking the question. What are you doing with Jesus in your marriage? What are you doing with Jesus to your kids? What are you doing with Jesus at the job? What are you doing with Jesus at church? What are you doing with Jesus? Is he really who he said he was? If he is, it should change everything. And I think part of our maturity in Christ is beginning to understand how that question is answered in everything we do. And when it stops, you kind of stop growing. You kind of stop getting close. You've kind of built a wall between you and Jesus. Well, some people don't reject him. Some people seek him. We see it right here in the Bible in the very beginning. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. In fact, I'll just read it from the screen. And going into the house, this is talking about the, uh, the, the wise men. The wise men, remember, had seen the star. And the wise men, it says here, yeah. They went into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, remember how the story goes, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. That was the shepherds now. That was the wise men. Look at the shepherds. Here's another passage. In Luke chapter 2. When the angels went away from them into heaven... They see these angels coming to them, telling them to go. The shepherds said to one another, well, let's go. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Many more seekers found him too. I'm struck by that. That last statement about the shepherds, what the Lord has made known to us. They felt compelled that they had to do something about it. Let's go see. They were going to go seek it out because of what the Lord's made known to us. And when I read this book by Lee Strobel, I see the same thing. It's like he's seeing piece by piece and he feels compelled. Well, I better learn some more. I better seek out some more. I better, In light of what God has already revealed to you, sitting there in your chair right now, are you seeking for more? Are you looking? See, some people, they didn't reject him, but they were seeking And really, to not be a seeker is to be a rejecter. So here they are, seeking, seeking, whether it's the wise men, the shepherds, and they're seeking to know him better, just like you and I are. You could talk about the crowds, you could talk about the disciples, we could talk about Nicodemus, this Pharisee, that was a Jew, Jewish leader, and he started listening to Jesus. John chapter 3, the story's recorded, or in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she wasn't a Jew, 
she, she wasn't a Gentile. She's kind of a half-breed in between. She's asking Jesus these questions. My, my people say we should worship here. Your people say we should worship here. What's the, at least she's asking the questions. And Jesus even tells her, well, maybe you're asking some of the wrong questions. But she's seeking Zacchaeus, that little guy that climbed the tree, the blind man who healed him, he sought him, the crippled man that, that, that Jesus healed. The, the intellectuals in Athens recorded in Acts 17, where Paul the Apostle is trying to talk to them. Some of them were seeking for answers. Some of them were just trying to have debate. The question becomes again, what are you going to do with Jesus? I think you need to keep seeking. Lee Strobel again in this book. I'm going to quote a few times from this book here. He says this. After a personal investigation that spanned over 600 days and countless hours, my own verdict in the case for Christ was clear. However, as I sat at my desk, I realized that I needed more than an intellectual decision. I wanted to take the experiential step that J.P. Moreland had described in the last interview I had done. He literally went around and interviewed people. Looking for a way to bring about what, what I knew could be true, I reached over to my Bible and opened it to John chapter 1, verse 12. I encountered this verse during my investigation. It says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, the key verbs in that verse spell out with mathematical precision what it takes to go beyond your mere intellectual assent to Jesus' deity and enter into an ongoing relationship with him by becoming adopted into God's family. Here was the mathematical equation. Believe plus receive equals become. Did you catch that? Believe plus receive equals become. He said, okay, now I started seeking and I found the answer. But just intellectually saying, well, okay, Jesus is really God. Well, what are you going to do about it, he thought. If he really is God, he really did raise from the dead, like he said earlier, then I can have a relationship with him. Like these Christians talk about being born again. You've got a personal relationship with God. Okay, he says, well, here it is, spelled out for you, as clear as it can be. You believe, you receive, and then you become. If you really do believe this to be true, that what you need to do is receive him. This is what he told Nicodemus. You need to be born again. You need to let me into your heart and life. This question needs to be what you live by. What are you going to do with Jesus? And then you become a child of God. <laughs> it's like I want to stop right here and pray with you, but I'm going to save it for the end. Because he, we go on from here to read the next thing people do. Some reject him, some seek him, but some actually accept him. That's the third point. Some accept Jesus. Mary did, and yet Mary had great doubts. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Luke. Or just put it on, I'll put it on the screen for you. In Luke chapter 1. Here's the story of Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. 
See, just because you're having trouble, just because you're having doubts, just because it brings questions to your mind, is not unusual. <laughs> Even Mary did. But she was greatly troubled at the saying <clears throat> and tried to discern that sort, of, that sort of greeting this might be, what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, <clears throat> for you found favor with God. And behold, you'll receive in your womb. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, Well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, every Christmas, <clears throat> it hits me like a ton of bricks. Like, you know, either this is true or it's not. Either he's really God in the flesh or he's not. The same question that Lee Strobel was struggling with. Well, if this is true, what do I need to do with Jesus? And it was even hitting Mary that way, wasn't it? It says here that she has, you know, this whole thing about... Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She had come to such a submissive place, believing that it was the truth. She says, Well, then I will submit to the truth. Let it be to me according to your word. Have you gotten to that place yet? I think that's what it means to be a real believer. You know, <clears throat> as we read on, we see Simeon. You remember who he was? They came to have Jesus circumcised, which was their practice after the eighth day of birth. That's what you do with male children. And they went to the temple to do this. And there's this old guy there named Simeon. And Simeon was a godly man, spent all his time. And God had told him, you know what, Simeon? You're not going to die before you get to see the Messiah. And when he saw baby Jesus, it's like, boom, that's him. He just knew it. God had told him. Or there was this old lady, 84 years old. Her name was Anna. She was called a prophetess, which means she could predict the future. And she was doing that. And she was at the temple. It's a day and night all the time worshiping the Lord. And when she saw baby Jesus, she goes, oh, that's the one. And she went out and told everybody about Jesus. She decided that's what she was going to do about it. We could talk about the religious leaders who debated him in the temple when he was 12 years old, or the disciples, or the crowds of people, or the people he had healed. Or I could go through church history from the book of Acts all the way up to today, where hundreds and thousands and millions of people up to today have decided what they need to do with Jesus is acknowledge him as their Savior and the Lord that he claimed to be. 
You know, Lee Strobel, I'll read one more time from his book. At the end, in the last pages of this book, look at what he says. I'll read it to you. I do feel a strong obligation to urge you to make this a front burner issue in your life. Don't approach it casually or flippantly because there's a lot riding on your conclusion. As Michael Murphy aptly put it, we ourselves, and not merely the truth claims, are at stake in the investigation about Jesus. In other words, if my conclusion in the case for Christ is correct, your future and your eternity in heaven or hell hinges upon what you do with Jesus. As Jesus declared, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. John 8, 24. Those are sober words, offered out of authentic and loving concern. I cite them to underline the magnitude of this matter, and in the hope that they will spur you to actively and thoroughly examine the case for Christ. In the end, however, remember that some options just aren't viable. The accumulated evidence has already been closed off to many of those things. This is what was observed by C.S. Lewis. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis, the famous atheist, a teacher at Cambridge University, who became a Christian and turned away from his atheism. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, they say, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That's the one thing we must not say at all. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him out for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. I don't know where you're at with Jesus. But I think it's profoundly important, like Lee Strobel, to decide. Am I a rejecter of Jesus? Am I a seeker of Jesus? Or am I going to accept Jesus? It's so easy for us to come to a Christmas service like we do today or we will tomorrow. And just kind of go through the formulas and the the different things. And forget what we're doing. We're admitting that this man is the Lord. This man was God. This man was our Savior. And like like, like C.S. Lewis concluded, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And you bow your knee before him and worship him. Remember that, that little mathematical equation? The least trouble took out of, out of that passage. Remember, first, in chapter, John chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, it says, And Jesus came to his own, I mean, it's 11 and 12. Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The choice is yours. No one else can make it for you. The question has to be answered by you. And we read in the book of Revelation, someday you'll stand before God and he'll say, well, what did you do with Jesus? It will be the biggest question in your entire life. And I suggest to you, I think it's the biggest question in your entire life right now. And tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, every day. What am I doing about Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? And I'd like to pray with you about it right now. Bow your head with me. Lord, we come before you, anticipating a great celebration in the next few days, but forgetting sometimes what it's all about. It's not about family. It's not about church services. It's not about anything of giving presents and Christmas trees and Santa Claus. It's about celebrating Jesus. Oh, Lord, forgive us. We can go through life and get so twisted, and I think the enemy himself works us, works us away and away and away from you. And I know there's people in this room right now that feel that they've been drifted off. It's time. It's your chance. Come on back. Come to the Lord maybe for the very first time. This is your chance. It's, it's believe, receive, and belong. Become. If you want to receive him, just ask him, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I want to become a believer. Maybe you've been a rejecter. Maybe you've just been a seeker, but, you know, just seeking, not making it too serious. I encourage you today to take it as serious as Jesus made it. When he declared, and it's declared of him in the, in the book of Revelation we read, it was all, everyone was judged by what they had done with Jesus. Make your decision today. He promises to love you and care for you and guide you. Or maybe the pressures of life, the difficulties of life have driven you away and you've had your doubts but instead of coming to him after you were troubled of heart like Mary, you have not come to him. So, Lord, we come to you today. We come to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, who we celebrate. May this be the greatest Christmas ever where we're really wrestling with that question. Well, what am I going to do with Jesus? Even as we celebrate with our family, even as we give presents, even as we're laughing and having fun, let's have fun. But because we know for sure Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And so we come before you today admitting that, Lord, and declaring that through all the songs we're going to sing tomorrow, all the presents we're going to open the next day, all the meals we're going to eat, we're going to declare our answer to the question of what we did with Jesus. We made him our Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas. See you tomorrow.